0: evening, everyone. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and please stand with me as we read God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I will warn you that this is a topical message, and so we won't spend a lot of time in First Thessalonians chapter four, but you will understand, I trust, why I started with this passage. First Thessalonians four verse one, let us hear God's infallible word given to us by His apostle Paul. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren. And exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called you, I'm sorry, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you've given us this word. I pray that you would teach us how to be holy people, that you would teach us purity, that you would teach us what it is to live as those who have been redeemed and purified by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord Jesus Give me the right affections, the right passion, the right approach to your holy word. Oh, Lord, are we not dealing here with souls of men and women? Are we not dealing here with eternal things? Are we not dealing here with heaven and hell, eternity and time? Oh, have mercy upon us now, I pray for Christ's sake. amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. This evening, I would like to talk about the priority of purity. The priority of purity. When I'm talking about purity, I mean sexual purity. For married people, this means exclusive loyalty of a husband and wife to one another. For single people, purity means abstinence and carefulness in dedication to Christ. The priority of purity for Christ's people. Purity is a priority in our day because of the impurity all around us. Consider the common actions of individual people all around you in our day. Many couples are living together without the formal covenant of marriage, which God ordained. Young people often engage in fornication. Divorce and remarriage are common, without just cause. People around us display their bodies in inappropriate ways, stare at other people's bodies, fantasize over others, wish for others, flirt with others, and touch others when God's law forbids it. Consider the actions of communities and nations in our day. In the 21st century, legal bodies, lawmakers, and judges are ignoring or nullifying some of the laws that protect marriage and purity. Purity is not a priority in our community and in our nation. Purity is not even considered a virtue among most. Consider the actions of businesses and corporations. Licentious films are created for money. Like refuse from a broken sewer pipe, we encounter a continuous flood of fleshly, indecent advertising. Simply so that someone can make a few more cents on a click of a mouse from advertising revenue. They will put anything in front of your eyes so you will look, stop, desire, and remember, and sin so they can make a few more cents. Corporations support and lobby for what are called alternative lifestyles, and they're simply patterns of sin against God. Consider the actions of churches in our day. Churches of the Holy Christ sometimes ignore fornication, divorce, and adultery in their midst. Some pastors and preachers ignore the priority of purity in their preaching. Thankfully, that's not the case here. We Praise God. Sometimes churches engage musicians who clothe themselves and present themselves in such a way that unclean, impure thoughts are naturally stirred up in the minds of people in the congregation. In our day, some of Christ's sheep purchased from the filth of this world by his blood have been known to wear flesh-revealing clothing of this adulterous generation in public and even in the very context of the worship of God. So in our day, our historical context, purity is not a priority for most people. And when we pedal back in history a few thousand years and go to the word of God, we find that the fight for purity and pressure from the world to impurity have always been a huge issue. It's big in the Bible, hence our subject, the priority of purity. The downfall of the sons of God before Noah's flood in Genesis chapter 6 is that they saw and took the fair daughters of the sons of men of all which they chose. Wicked Balaam's, that false prophet, his counsel to destroy Israel was to bring in the beautiful women And get the people to fall into idolatry. Godly David fell into grievous sin with far reaching consequences when he committed sin because of the impurity of his eye, of word, and of deed. In this world, impurity, sexual impurity, is a universal temptation. But purity, and, and purity is not a priority for most people. So here's the question Should purity be a priority for us? as God's people. The Bible says yes, and that's what we want to look at today. God's word gives us a clear picture of what a priority purity is. Let us look briefly, very briefly, at the text we began with, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing a loving, fatherly letter to relatively new believers in Christ. He's full of thanksgiving to God. It's clear that the Thessalonians are God's elect, Paul says, because the word of God that Paul preached worked in them mightily with power. And that's how you know who the elect are. If you've ever wondered, how do you know who the elect are? Because God's word works in them mightily by the power of the Holy Spirit. These Thessalonians were convicted by the Holy Ghost. They converted to Christ. They turned from their idol worship to serve the living and true God. They no longer waited for little G- gods to help them through life's troubles. Instead, they are waiting for God's living Son from heaven, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. And Paul wants these believers here in 1 Thessalonians to be assured of his continued love and care for them. He also longs for them and wants to see them again. But the next best thing to seeing them is receiving news of their continued faith in Christ and love for him, Paul. As Christ's apostle. And so he encourages them and he reaffirms and strengthens that relationship that he has with them in chapters one through three. And then when you come to chapter four, which is the part we read, we might say, well, now, Paul, as you get to the meat of your letter, you've said all kinds of nice things to these Thessalonians and you've encouraged them with their testimony and your thoughts about them, your love for them. What will you say to these former pagans who now believe in Christ? What is really burning in your heart to give to these followers of Christ? Later in the book, he'll focus their minds on the return of Christ. Later, he'll urge them to loving concern for their brethren in the church. Later, he will talk to them about submitting to and obeying their elders in the church. But what is the first thing that he brings to their minds? Obedience to the body of instruction that Paul had given them, his commands. It's right there in chapter 4, verse 2. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And sanctification. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Being made more holy. As you left those idols, you left the little g, gods, of this world, and now you are waiting for the Son of God from heaven. What is God's will for you? Sanctification being made holy. And what does Paul mention as a first priority in sanctification? Abstaining from fornication. Paul says to them, verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. He goes on to other things. And we have to say in other lists of applications of God's word. and other lists of sanctification, Paul does not always begin with fornication. But here, in this context, he begins with abstaining from fornication, abstaining from sexual sin. That word fornication is a general word, and it refers to sexual sin. Sexual purity is a priority for God's people. So what I want us to do is to take a high-level view of of the priority and importance of purity in God's word. We'll move through the Bible quite a bit, so please do keep your Bible in hand, and we'll we'll look at about I think it's about 14 passages or so, just briefly. We're not going to do an in-depth study, we're not going to do a, a deep exegesis of each passage. Those are vitally important. But tonight we're going to do just a topical look at the priority of purity. It's huge in the Bible. So let's move back in the Bible to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Purity, and the first thought from here from Genesis chapter 2, is that purity is a priority because marriage was instituted at creation as an exclusive relationship of one man and one woman. In chapter 1 of Genesis, like in um, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, 28, we see that God had blessed mankind with the ability to bear children. He said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And a similar blessing had been given to the animals, to be fruitful and multiply. When God created them, he created them male and female, and he gave them the ability to Bear children to have offspring, to reproduce. This blessing was given to both animals and man. Animals and people have this in common, that they have babies. And that's a good thing. It's a gift from God. Amen. But with humankind, mankind, we have something further in His creation as male and female. And that's where we go to Genesis chapter three, chapter two. I'm sorry. God didn't just create them and say, "Be fruitful and multiply and leave it there. In chapter 2, let's read verses 18 through 25 to see the further unfolding of what happened at that time of creation when he blessed them and said, be fruitful. Verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So in contrast to the animals where God had simply said, be fruitful and multiply, God's be fruitful and multiply to man is conditioned by further actions that God took and by further words that were spoken. In contrast to the animals, God gave to man a special institution. God went to the trouble of acting out a ceremony of provision for Adam, more or less a kind of surgery. The first anesthesia, I think someone said, I don't know who said it first, but it, it works. It was a divine anesthesia. And God put Adam to sleep and took out that rib and made a woman. Why did he do it like that? Why didn't he just form Eve out of the ground next to Adam? It's a ceremony. There's meaning to it. And Adam reciprocated with a ceremony of acceptance. Special words as this sinless man created in perfection, the, the, the perfection of being without sin. Adam there seeing his beautiful wife presented to him as he wakes up from his anesthesia. And I'm sure he didn't have that heaviness and stupor that we get when we wake up from our anesthesia. But he woke up with a clear mind and clear eye and he saw a beautiful creature and he gave a poem. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Just as Adam had been naming all these animals, he now names his favorite creature. And she's not just another creature. She is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. So there's that ceremony of provision and a ceremony of acceptance. And then there's a commentary of explanation. Just in case we didn't get the point with all these ceremonies. Just in case we we missed the point of the wedding, there's an explanation. And the explanation is in verse 24. And this explanation, based on God's peculiar manner of creating the woman and presenting her to Adam, then the explanation comes with the word, therefore. And commentators differ on whether it's Adam saying, therefore, you know, foreseeing that he would have offspring and there would be marriage continuing on in the world, or whether Moses is saying, therefore, or simply, we know it's God's word, so is it whether, whether Adam said it then or whether Moses said it later, God is giving it to us. Verse 24 is God's commentary on the ceremony. And the, the, the commentary is, Therefore, because of how, how God did all of this with Adam and Eve, therefore shall a man, kind of a general term, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. This explanation in verse 24 has universal force because of where we are in the Genesis narrative. We're like right at creation. God just made a man. Then God put us in suspense. There were helpers for all the other creatures. You know, bulls had cows, roosters had hens, ganders had geese, or whatever they are. But there was no helper for man. And then God did that surgery and made a woman and gave her to the man, and the first man wakes up from his surgery, sees his beautiful bride, exclaims about how wonderful she is, and then the words, therefore shall a man. It's a universal description of what should happen after that. The first man reveals for us what all men should do, and not just should do, shall do. This word of explanation in verse 24 calls for a man to leave his father and mother. It calls for a cleaving unto his wife, holding on to her, being dedicated to her. Then it concludes with that summary, they shall be one flesh. Who would be one flesh? The two, the man and his wife. Uh This short explanation in verse 24 teaches all kinds of things about nuclear family because a man leaves his father and mother. Parental responsibility and its limits because a man leaves his father and mother. But even more about marriage, we won't explore all those things just a lot in that verse, at verse 24, and it shows up in all kinds of theological discussions about all kinds of things related to marriage, family, all those kinds of things. But this is the basis of marriage. This is why marriage takes place in this world. It's not just a human event. It's not just a human idea, a human institution. We can't redefine it. We can't reshape it. God made it at the very beginning. The leaving and cleaving of verse 24 tells us that the man-woman relationship is to be permanent, cleave, and loyal, cleave, as well as physical, one flesh. It is exclusive. The two, man and woman. So when we talk about purity and the priority of purity, it all starts right here. Anything related to marriage in the Bible really starts right here. So we probably, as we go through the Christian life, we should expect to come back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 quite frequently. Purity, as I'm exploring it in this message, is demonstrating that loyalty that we see prescribed in Genesis 2.24, that cleaving. Impurity is disloyalty to that relationship. Purity is being exclusive about who you love and who you touch. Impurity is being inclusive about who you love and who you touch. This exclusivity matters because God made all of us either male or female. And our pastor Jeff likes to remind us of that fact, that you're either a man or a woman, boy or girl, and to good effect, good to be reminded what we really are. And since we're all either male or female, and at the very beginning God instituted something we call marriage, an exclusive relationship, then we all need to make purity a priority. So Genesis chapter 2. And then we move along through the Bible. And as we go into the body of Genesis. before we get to the book of Exodus with its laws and all the laws that God gave to Israel while we're there with the patriarchs and all of the, the people in ancient times in the book of Genesis, we see that purity was a priority there. We won't look at particular texts, but just think of the things that go on in Genesis. Think, as I mentioned before, of Noah's flood. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took of all that they chose They saw that those women were beautiful, gratifying to the senses, and they took, of all which they chose. In Genesis, the book of Genesis, we read of rape, incest, adultery, prostitution, and all with dire consequences. Mm -hmm. Then as we move into Exodus, of course, we come to Exodus chapter 20 and many other passages, but let's just think about the Ten Commandments. What were the Ten Commandments? They were a summary of what God was requiring his people to do in response to his glorious work of redemption and bringing them out of Egypt. He was calling them to exclusive faithfulness to him. And there we see in the Ten Commandments the abiding and universal law of God in very summary form. And the items that appear in those Ten Commandments are universals, and they're also very simple. And thou shalt not commit adultery is encoded in the Ten Commandments. On the surface, it might appear that that command only refers to one kind of sexual sin, adultery. But when you consider the fundamental nature of marriage, as we saw in Genesis chapter 2, and that exclusivity in marriage is the basis for purity, then we can see how Thou shalt not commit adultery demands or implies every aspect of purity and holiness between men and women in thought, word, and deed. In the 17th century, a group of Puritan pastors compiled the Westminster Larger Catechism. And this catechism gives us some thought-provoking expansions of each of the Ten Commandments. And on the Seventh Commandment, it gives us a lot to think about. So I'm just going to read through what they say comes directly from the Seventh Commandment as they thought about the implications of what this commandment requires. What are the duties required in the Seventh Commandment? The duties required in the Seventh Commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, not hanging out with people who aren't clean, modesty in apparel, marriage by those who have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation. You must live together if you're married. Diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness, and resisting temptations thereunto. Then they go on to ask, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment besides the neglect of the duties required are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, and that's houses of ill repute, houses of prostitution, and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, like the Roman Catholics would do, making a vow never to marry in order to be a monk or a priest, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancings, stage plays, and all other provocations too, or acts of uncleanness either in ourselves or others. So these pastors who compiled the Westminster Larger Catechism, they sat and thought. If we look at all of Scripture and we think about how this command fits into the big scheme of things, what flows from it? A lot of stuff in every area of our lives. So we saw that marriage was instituted as an exclusive relationship at the very beginning. And then we see purity and impurity appearing in Genesis. And then we see a command for purity in the Ten Commandments itself. And then, as we move a little further along, we see that purity is a priority because the Holy God prescribed the death penalty for violation of several of the laws related to purity under the Mosaic Law. For example, and this is only one example, one one section, Leviticus chapter 20, Mm -hmm. lying with another person's spouse, lying with a close relative, or lying with a beast, all called for capital punishment. Death. Death for sins of impurity. Purity is a priority also because impurity drastically affects our earthly well-being. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. And this early part of Proverbs is a father, Solomon, writing to his son, giving him fatherly instruction there's a concreteness about the women in the first chapters of Proverbs. Solomon talks about the woman wisdom and also about the strange woman, and they relate directly to actual people, but also there's an abstractness to them. When he talks about woman wisdom, he's talking about wisdom, and also when he's talking about the strange woman, he's probably referring also to sin but we can see it in either sense, an abstract sense or a concrete sense. But here, he definitely takes a very specific and concrete view of the strange woman, an unclean woman, an unfaithful woman, a wife, even a prostitute. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1, he says, My son, attend unto my wisdom and bow thy ear to my understanding that thou mayest regard discretion and that thy lips may keep Knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. Lest thou give thy honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed, and say, how have I hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me, I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. We have hints here of the effect of this sin, the effect of going after this woman in eternal ways, where he says her feet go down to death and her steps take hold on hell, but also Solomon turns his son's attention to the effects on his life in this world. He talks about strangers being filled with his wealth, his labors being in the house of a stranger, and his years going to the cruel, and his honor going to others, and his body, his flesh and body being consumed. I don't know about your neighborhood, but mine is an illustration of this reality. And this should should affect our hearts to see our fellow citizens affected by their sins. Diseases accompany loose living. Depression and substance abuse follow adultery, divorce, abuse of children and women, or repeated shacking up and abandonment. There are legal ramifications to actions of impurity. Think of the sex offender registration list. Think of child support. I once sat in a room of delinquent juvenile boys, and I asked them how many of them had children, and I was surprised. These are juveniles, 14 to 17. Quite a number did, and it was not a happy thing. Some of them don't love the woman they once lusted after, but the state of Florida stands over each man and cleans out his bank account every month to support the woman he no longer loves and the child that he unfortunately fathered. Impurity is a blot, a mark on a person's life, and it continues throughout life. But not only does impurity affect our earthly well-being. Purity is a priority because as we move along through the Bible, we learn that marriage, that marriage that we learned about, that we saw was an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman, we see that it's also a covenant of mutual ownership. I use the word ownership. I like it. I think people in our society wouldn't. But it's mutual ownership. Let's continue there in in chapter 5 of Proverbs. Now, we just read verses 1 through 14, but let's pick up in 9 again. Verse 9, Lest thou give thy honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel, lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger, and thou mourn at last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed, and say, how have I ate instruction, and so on. And then verse 15, we see a contrast Contrast with those others, those strangers, the cruel. Verse 15, he says, Drink waters out of thy own cistern, and running waters out of thy own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thy own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe, let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? Marriage is that covenant in which that relationship that we read about in Genesis chapter 2, in which a man and a woman enter into ownership of one another. That's why we say, My wife, my husband. And it's not only that the wife belongs to the husband, the husband belongs to the wife. We see that again in the book of Hosea. If you remember, Hosea was called upon by God. He was a prophet called by God to declare woes and blessing to Israel. And as he did so, God used Hosea's personal life as an illustration. Hosea's wife went off and became a filthy woman. And he told Hosea, go and get her and bring her back, and accept her again as your wife. And in chapter 3 of verse 3, Hosea says, Thou shalt not be for another man, so will I also be for thee. That mutual ownership, come back, I'm going to treat you as mine, and you treat me as yours, and we limit it to that, that mutual ownership. If you think back on Genesis chapter 2, back where we were, you think of that ceremony ceremony, of of God bringing Eve to Adam and then Adam responding in accepting Eve and rejoicing in her and then that explanation, it's a ceremony that is similar to a transfer of ownership. You take a thing, you drop it off at someone's place and you leave it there. What is that for? So they can have it. Eve became Adam's And Adam became Eve's. And that's why it said, he shall cleave to his wife. But not only is purity a priority because marriage is a covenant of mutual ownership, but purity is a priority because in that covenant of mutual ownership and exclusivity, God has given us a primary picture of his relationship with his people. And we see that in the Old Testament. You can think of it in Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's just turn there, Jeremiah 31, where God is declaring to his people Israel, who he had exiled to Babylon, he says to them that he's going to make a new covenant with them. A very familiar passage, but very important. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. will be their God, and they shall be my people. Many other passages, Isaiah 54, verse 5, the Lord spoke to Israel and said, that he would restore them and redeem them. Of course, another promise of the new covenant. And there in Isaiah 54, he says, thy maker is thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. And as we move into the New Testament, of course, we see even more of that, that God himself enters into that relationship with his people and specifically Christ as the husband, the bridegroom of his church. And the church being the bride. Ephesians chapter 5 is a an excellent summary of that, that glorious picture. Let's just turn there and read Ephesians chapter 5 and just consider the beauty and the glory of God instituting this, this institution of marriage way back at the beginning as an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman and then using it as a primary picture of his relationship with his individual people and also his corporate people, the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You see the wedding day imagery there in presenting to himself a spotless and glorious bride. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. Paul is going all the way back to Genesis and bringing this directly in, not even with an introductory phrase, he just quotes it because it perfectly fits his context. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. And when Paul uses mystery language, it's often in relation to things that were revealed in the Old Testament in an unclear manner, and then now they've been fully revealed in Christ. So when he says this is a great mystery, I suppose, and I believe, and others believe, that he's talking about Adam and Eve being like an initial prototype of Christ and the church, which makes the whole institution of marriage the picture of God and his people, Christ and his people, and that was God's point all along. Why did he make it exclusive? Why didn't he give us just be fruitful and multiply, just like the animals, with no further ceremony? No, he did a ceremony because there's going to be a great ceremony at the end, and that great ceremony shaped Pastor Jeff told us, first things shape last things. Last things shape first things. First things are done with last things in view. And last things shape first things. Well, the last thing is that glorious bride and that glorious bridegroom coming together forever. Amen. So what should the first thing look like? Well, like that. Amen. A man and a woman coming together, what? To go apart again? No. No. Coming together to bring others into the mix? No. Coming together for exclusive rejoicing in and enjoyment of one another in this world. And this world is a limited place. So their relationship will end in this world, but as long as they're in this world, it continues unviolated by God's design. So we have all of these reasons why purity should be a priority. Let's just recap them a little bit. Purity is a priority because God instituted marriage as an exclusive relationship of one man and woman at creation. Purity is a priority, should be a priority, because before the giving of the law in Genesis and the early parts of the history of Israel, we see that God took purity seriously, and impurity was a big deal as well. We see that purity is a priority because That central command, thou shalt not commit adultery, is part of the Ten Commandments and spelled out all through the rest of Scripture. We can see that purity is a priority because the Holy God prescribed the death penalty for violation of laws related to purity. Purity is a priority because impurity drastically affects our earthly well-being. Purity is a priority because as we move along through the Bible, we learn that marriage is that covenant of mutual ownership. And then we see that marriage is a primary picture that God has used for his relationship with his people. Purity is a priority. And there's so much more to say. As I mentioned, the, the fact of impurity in this world, of course, that was not to leave out the eternally significant importance of purity in, in the fact that when we sin and continue in sin and are not washed in the blood of Christ in anything, especially sexual sin, that it leads to eternal judgment. I just didn't have it in my list because I was just giving some meditative thoughts, (laughs) a topical sermon, that's the danger of it. Okay, so a summary of what we've seen. From all we've seen, purity is a priority because it's everywhere in the Bible. It's not a fringe issue, a little topic that you can get to if you have time. It's pretty basic, and I think I know why, because it touches who we are. You're either a man or a woman. You're male or female, and that's a good thing Purity is also a priority because of what marriage is, that exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. And because our manness and womanness is basic to who we are, purity, or its failure, impurity, are a priority every day and in almost every situation. And that's why it shows up all through the Old Testament and New Testament. Paul brings it up a lot. The Lord Jesus brings it up a lot. It shows up in every context we are in, church, school, work, wherever we are, families. It affects purity. Sexual issues affect many facets of our person, our eyes, our thoughts, our desires, our whole body. It affects our social interactions, our clothes, how we present ourselves, our friends, our freedom or restriction in communication. In a way, sexual purity is different from many other moral categories of right and wrong because of how pervasive it is. You might only deal with temptations to murder or theft on an occasional basis, but impurity is probably every day in some way or another. One area that impurity sneaks in on us is our clothing. Did you know your clothes are talking? Right now, where you sit, your clothes are having a conversation with the people around you. Some clothes say to onlookers, I belong to someone, and that person takes good care of me. That person gives me honor and respect and dignity, and my clothes say so. Other clothes say, hey, I'm careless and rather lazy, and I don't care what you think. Then there are some clothes that say, I'm not happy with the family, the father, the husband, the wife. I belong to, and I want someone else to like me. I want you to look at me and check me out and come over and like me. I didn't say that's what you say. I said that's what your clothes say. It's the clothing of insecurity, of selfishness, of lust. Clothing is difficult for us as Christians because we don't usually have the luxury of being able to design our own clothes. We don't usually sit down and plan our clothes and make our clothes. And we can't in every case. But sinful people who make up all of this world, so I'm not just picking on them, but sinful people in the fashion industry make clothes for us and their design patterns reflect their interests, and the clothes say what they want them to say. Right. But be careful with what message you put on. Your clothes are talking, so be sure you wear the ones that are saying what you want to be said as a believer in Christ. So that was a little digression on the clothes. But purity is a priority, and we'll spend a little more time on this. Purity is a priority because it is a priority to Jesus Christ, the pure and holy Son of God. Jesus Christ went to the trouble to come into this impure world and save filthy sinners at the greatest cost to himself. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. There are many passages I could I could go to or we could go to to think about Christ and this issue of purity, so many things he said about purity, but I'm just going to go through a few. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. Paul is talking to that church at Corinth that had many issues going on, and one of the issues was that someone in the church was committing fornication. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. How? In the name, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's a legal and practical aspect to what he describes here. This purification process has this legal side. The authority of Jesus by his sinless life, his sufficient death, his triumphant resurrection has obtained on his authority our justification and sanctification. Then there's also that practical side It's applied by the Holy Spirit, the heavenly agent. The Holy Spirit comes and visits you at the crime scene of your filthy impurity. He comes and gives you faith in that redeeming Son. He gives you heartfelt sorrow for your sin and gives you a longing to be like Jesus. Such were some of you, but ye are washed, sanctified, justified. What trouble did the Lord Jesus go to so that Paul could say to these filthy Corinthians who have now been washed, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, justified and sanctified. What what did Christ do? He lived that sinless life and he gave his life's blood on Calvary's cross for the sins of his people. Now, if we are impure and Christ went to all this trouble for for our purity, if we were impure, and Christ went to all this trouble for our purity, then what priority should we put on that purity that he purchased? Go with me in your mind's eye to Luke chapter 7, to Pharisee Simon's house. The touching scene of our Savior and the sinful woman. You remember that woman in the city came and was behind the Lord Jesus as he sat at table with Simon Simon the pharisee tears flowed freely from her eyes and she began wiping his feet with her hair and anointed her feet his feet with her tears remember our lord's announcement to her her announcement about her her sins which are many are forgiven think of her sins filthy and impure think of the weight they must have been upon her before her forgiveness and then think of her tears of gratitude for Christ's redemption he acknowledged the greatness of her sins, her sins, which were many. But he turned to her and said to her face, thy sins are forgiven. And then thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. So think of that sinful woman and think of the pure and holy Savior. Luke tells us she was grateful to the point of tears. Why did she weep? Why did she weep? I don't know what she knew, but I know what we know and why we should weep in the same context. We, like this sinful woman, were all once filthy, impure sinners who reveled in going beyond the boundaries of God's law. We, like her, were all defiled in his sight, filthy and evil because of our impurity. We were worthy of the crushing weight of God's eternal wrath against sin. The fire of hell will burn forever. Some of us, like her, defiled our body, our mind, and our soul with great sins of lust, fornication, and adultery. But we, just like this woman, have come in contact with a great Savior. We have seen Him going about doing good as no other man did, earning for us a perfect righteousness of His active obedience. But we've seen more than she saw because we have seen Him going to the garden and sweating great drops of blood. We have seen Him at Gabbatha, uh, the pavement, submitting to a mock trial. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own self. We've seen him go to Golgotha, not for himself, but for us and for our impurities. We've seen his brow pierced with that thorny crown. We've seen his beard plucked. We've seen his hands and his feet nailed to that cross. We have heard him cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we have heard him cry, it is finished. Then we saw him go to the grave. What was finished? Our impurity, our lusts, our sins, our vileness, our violation of that exclusiveness of marriage. the plan of God for the cleansing and washing and justifying and sanctifying of his once sinful people was all wrapped up in what Christ accomplished. Then we saw him rise again, triumphant, not for himself, but for us. We saw him ascending and crowned with authority and glory, as we heard on Sunday, for his once impure people. And when we come now to anoint his feet in praise and love, shall we not feel gratitude and devotion to his person, and should it not make a lot of sense to us if Christ did all that for Paul to say, remember my commandments, that you would pursue sanctification and abstain from fornication? What has Christ procured for us? Purity. He got it for us. He paid a lot for it. It's a priority. He got a new name for our shame. He got a new white garment for our filthy rags. He got pure gold for our debts. He got clear eyesight instead of our blindness. He gave us purity, holiness, righteousness. Will you not display your gratitude by treasuring, guarding, using, and flourishing in the purity that he has procured for you? But not only has Christ done all of this marvelous work to give us purity, but he demands, it's a sweet demand, it's a command. He demands repentance from all impurity. In this, in Corinthians, but not 1 Corinthians, just turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll read verses 19 through 21. 2 Corinthians 19-21 through of course repentance is all through the Bible but here's a verse that helps to illustrate especially repentance in relation to this issue of impurity the apostle Paul is dealing with the church at Corinth and the church at Corinth is, is not honoring him as an apostle some there are questioning his apostleship or questioning his integrity Paul is is having to use all kinds of of ways of trying to communicate to get their hearts turned back to him. In verse 19, he says again, think you that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear. Remember, he's writing to a church of Jesus Christ, purified by the blood of Christ, called apart by the Holy Spirit of Christ, the same group of people that he wrote to in First Corinthians chapter 6, where he said, But such were some of you, but now you are washed, you are justified, you are sanctified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He's writing to these same people. He says, We speak before God in Christ, For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, And that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. And lest when I come again, my God shall humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed." Why was Paul so upset? Remember, these Corinthians had been purified by Christ. And Paul understands that remaining sin has dragged them down and they have fallen. But now, what he's most upset about in this verse is that after their fall, they did not repent. In this verse, he's not saying, don't sin. He's saying, in this verse, he's saying, I will bewail that you haven't repented from the sin you've committed because they've already committed it. At least that's the way he's proposing it. If you fall, what do you do? Repent and return. As far as what repentance is, I like the little children's catechism answer for shortness, although there's a lot more to it. It's to be sorry for sin and to hate and forsake it because of love for Christ and faith in his work. Repent of impurity. God demands it. Purity is a priority also as we see Christ doing all of this glorious work. Purity is a priority because the Holy Spirit-empowered believer can and must walk in victory. Romans chapter 6, which should be a familiar passage to all of us. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 The Apostle Paul talks to the believers in Rome and he says, Let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. He had just told them that because of their union with Christ, they were both died with Christ to sin and now they have risen again with Christ and now they live in newness of life. So he says, as those that are alive from the dead, Yield yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So purity should be a priority for us because we can for believers in Christ. If you're not, you cannot. But if you do believe in Christ, if you've been united to Christ, he died, sin has been, has, it's had its, its, its throat slit It is on its way to the grave. It is dead, and you've risen again with Christ. And now you can, and you must, and you will walk in victory if you belong to Christ. Purity is a priority because it reveals your eternal destiny. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 as John sees that glorious vision of the new heavens and the new earth. He sees the glorious gathering of the saints into the city, but then he also sees those outside. He says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Can believers fall? Yes, believers can fall. Redeemed sinners might fall into all kinds of sin, but they do repent and they do fight because, as we read in Romans, sin shall not have dominion over you. Amen. <clears throat> and then, lastly, purity must be a priority for the church of Christ because God has called his church to guard its membership against impurity. We've been spending some time in 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll just read verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. If you weren't going to have fellowship with impure people in the world, then go to heaven. It's the only way out. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. God has called his church, the church of Jesus Christ, to guard its membership from sins of impurity. So purity is a priority. I hope you get that line. That's the whole point. Purity is a priority. Is it a priority for you or has it been low on your list? If it's low on your list, I'm sure impurities come in somewhere. It must be a priority. Remember, for married people, this means exclusive loyalty of husband and wife to one another. For single people, purity means abstinence and carefulness in dedication to Christ. Bask more in Christ's love. Be more grateful for his redemption from impurity. Strive for pure thoughts by Christ's grace. Strive to rest your eyes on pure objects by his power. Strive to speak pure words by his spirit. Strive to do pure actions out of love for Christ. Strive to encourage purity in his people that are around you. And remember your closed talk. Are you defiled and impure? Wash at the fountain open for sin and for uncleanness. Did we not describe it? The great and glorious work of Christ. And he says to all those who are weary and heavy laden with all kinds of sin. You might say well maybe that's just for religious sinners or good sinners kind of not so messed up sinners. No, he says come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, you will find rest for your souls in purity. Come to Christ. Are you Victorious? Give God the glory and pray for strength to maintain purity. And let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Amen. Let us pray. Amen. Oh, our Father in heaven, I pray that we would remember the priority of purity. And I also pray that we would remember the priority of Christ as the glorious and great Savior with whom we walk day by day. O oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us, that if you have spent so much for our purity, we wouldn't waste any of your great expenses, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't dishonor you and prove ourselves ungrateful. Lord, that we would be like that woman in Luke 7, that we would constantly be thanking, and praising, and blessing your name, that we'd be overwhelmed with the sense of freedom from our guilt and deliverance from our sin and thankful when we hear those glorious words, thy sins are forgiven thee. Praise you for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.